This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharif Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. After completing his law degree in the mid-1970s, Ilan Lax knew he wanted to focus on human rights law. He was fortunate to get articles with one of the foremost liberal lawyers in Natal, Les Weinberg. Ilan worked in land rights issues as well as with the detainees' parent support group. He is one of the mention featured in Jonathan Anser's book, Mentions in the Trenches, and he joins me now to tell me more. Ilan, I'm delighted to have you as my guest. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. You weren't initially sure what you wanted to do, but you grew up with a social conscious that understood that apartheid was wrong and you wanted to do something. Tell me your story. I was actually born in Israel. My parents had gone on Aliyah. They'd helped start a kibbutz, Kibbutz Nachshon, which is uh, just next to Latrun. Then my dad got quite ill and the family brought my parents back with me at that stage. I was probably about 18 months old at the time. And then I grew up in Johannesburg. Initially, we lived in Observatory, and then later on, we lived in Bez Valley with my grandparents. Grandmother's home was expropriated because they wanted to build a new school in Bez Valley, and then they never did actually build that school. But we then moved to a flat in Hillbrow, and my mum decided that Hillbrow wasn't a salubrious sort of environment for two young boys, my brother and I, to grow up in. So we were went off to boarding school. And then much later, my mum remarried and we moved to KwaZulu-Natal. So I finished off my schooling in part of KwaZulu-Natal called Kloof, which is unusual because being an English part of the world, they call it Kloof, not Kloof. I then went and did my national service straight after matric. Interestingly, by the time I came out of the army, I was much more politically aware than when I went in. You know, I grew up in a family that was liberally minded. We understood that having experienced lots of anti-Semitism, what it was like to be on the wrong side of public opinion and on the wrong side of the majority view. Ironically, in South Africa, the majority view was a minority view, with the majority of people being the subjects of apartheid. I always had that sense, that feeling for the underdog of what it felt like not to be treated well. My sort of abiding value in life has always been do unto others as you want them to do unto you. So that sense of having felt an underdog gave me a sense for the underdog and made me feel that wrong had to be dealt with in some way or other. I think that's the fairest way I could try and describe how I ended up in 1976 going to university for the first time. And then I dropped out in 1978, interestingly. I was working for a big firm in Durban and I wasn't happy there. I I really didn't like the culture, felt that I was in the wrong place. I dropped out of university for a couple of months and took some time off and did the usual finding of oneself hitchhiked around the country, did a little bit of surfing and fishing and that kind of experience where I was basically surviving on very little uh, and then decided, no, I must go and finish what I've started. So I moved to Peter Maritzburg, found a place to stay and was very lucky because the KwaZulu-Natal Council for Jury offered me a bursary was not a hell of a lot of money at the time. I mean, it was about 450 rand a year, but it paid my fees and it helped. And I did odd jobs, managed, you know, every holiday I I went up to Johannesburg and found jobs and worked. 
and made my way through university, luckily not owing anyone anything, apart from obviously a debt, having received a bursary, a sort of a moral debt, if you like, to pay it back and play it back in a way. Ilan, you were, as I said, um, articled, you're an article clerk at Les Weinberg. You got very involved with land right issues. And I think you were known as the hunter down of witnesses to ensure that cases that might have otherwise been ignored were actually uh, dealt with and, and potentially effectively so. Do you want to talk a little bit about the time and the work you did? I was really lucky to get articles because they're quite hard to come by. And Les Weinberg was a well-known liberal lawyer. He was one of those unsung heroes of the Liberal Party. I had got involved with an organization called the Association for Rural Advancement. As a student, I got involved and they were essentially a land rights movement fighting removals at that time, which was part of the grand scheme of apartheid. People who were not, and the euphemism used was well-situated were required to be moved out of so-called black spot areas, which were places where, where African people owned land, uh, had rights to live on land. And this wasn't convenient to the broad Favudian architecture and landscape. And so quite often I would call out to go and defend people charged under the Prevention of Illegal Squatting Act or Trespass Act. These were people who lived on farms. In KwaZulu-Natal and in Mpumalanga, there was this phenomenon of labor tenancy, which is a very old, uh, goes back to Roman law, actually. And because we have a Roman Dutch system, the early colonialists brought that with them. So it's the idea that you can live on someone's land, provided you provide an able-bodied person to, to do work for six months of the year. And you were allowed to live put up structures, farm, have cattle, and so on. And the only quid pro quo was that you, your family provided an able-bodied person for six months of the year. And so in places like Wienen, which is near Escort, uh, which is about uh, 150 kilometers from Maritzburg, farmers had allowed laborers to occupy huge swathes of land and as pressure on land grew and as the apartheid scheme became more and more implemented, these farmers were under pressure to remove people from their land and move them into the homelands. Part of my job was to go and find out and help people who were being charged under those laws and defend them if possible. There's a really funny story that I can tell where as a young law student, I'd got an instruction and I was told, yes, we're going to go out on the weekend. This is the scenario. Please go and do your research and go there. Um, so on the weekend, we went out to this community and there was a big meeting. And I, as a young candidate attorney, had done all the research and I related the research to them. And eventually, when I'd finished, this old gentleman stood up and he said, Thank you, Mr. Lawyer, for your very erudite presentation. But actually, we knew all of that already. <laughs> you can imagine how <laughs> deflated I was. He said, now listen carefully. This is what we want you to do. <laughs> and proceeded to tell me what my instructions were. It was a salutary lesson, you know. Don't go and do all the research before you actually know what your clients need. 
And I've tried to remember that much of my, my adult life thereafter. Ilang, you are still in land rights work, is that correct? You still yeah, so are, still, you continue your activism work. I do, and, I, and I'm still involved with AFRA all these years later. So I started in 1983 with AFRA. And in those days, AFRA was an organization where we were a committee of people all involved, and we did all the work ourselves. These days, it's an organization with field workers and staff and infrastructure and funding. It's a completely different organization. So I serve on the board of AFRA as its treasurer for the time being. But it's a big, you know, it has a budget of a couple of million a year. At the moment, the work that it does is it tries to help farm workers primarily who are being forced off land in one shape or form and negotiate with landowners to find solutions. I mean, it's so important today. You know, we, we talk a lot. Land is crucial to South Africa. It's, it's kind of one of the, the, the fights that we're having. It's, it's a, who, who owns the land. We talk about land redistribution. We talk about justice and equality. And where are we at as South Africans? You particularly having seen the process from the beginning. We're in a very interesting place. And in my mind, one of the key problems around land and land redistribution and land justice, if you like, is the fact that we have bureaucracy that is unable to do its job. That for me is one of the key elements. And secondly, we have a huge amount of corruption. And if we could get those two elements correct, there would be no need for changing the constitution or anything like that. In my mind, the constitution is more than adequate and the land laws we have are more than adequate to allow for a just redistribution of land and a just allocation of land so that many of the people who feel that they've been dispossessed could find just solutions to that problem. So in my mind, I really don't believe we need to go the heavy-handed approach that some people are advocating, people like the EFF and so on. I just don't believe it's necessary. And I really believe that if we simply unblock the blockages that have occurred because of corruption and because of maladministration, we would be able to take the land rights and land justice issue forward with a great deal of effectiveness. Ilan, having been an activist from the beginning and continue to do so, do you feel that passion, that same passion that you did when you in, in the 70s, 80s that, that you do now? I do, but that passion is tempered with a little bit of disappointment. We never expected to see 1994 come as it did in our own lifetimes and then to end up with the incredible kind of progressive constitution that we've ended up with, which is aspirational in, in, in nature rather than necessarily giving you everything here and now. I still feel very fired up to want to work in human rights and to help people in the way in which one can and to take some of the lessons we learned in the 80s and 90s and we continue to learn through the 2000s and now the 2020s because the amazing thing about doing the kind of work that I do is I, I learn new stuff all the time and you learn how little you don't know you know, or how little you do know, let's put it that way, and how much more there is to know. I enjoy learning all the time. I enjoy having to challenge myself and 
realized that actually just when I thought I knew something, I, I discovered there's an element that about it that changes everything and that forces me to rethink everything. So in that sense, doing the kind of work I do is incredibly fulfilling and motivating. It sounds like a, quite a journey. Uh, the, the difference between doing the work then and the, doing the work now is that in those days it was dangerous and you put yourself at risk. Yes, I suppose so. You know, one, one never thought about the risks. You kind of pushed them aside. You just got on with it. You spoke about me going to find witnesses and driving into areas at night to go and locate a witness who was needed for it. And all I knew was that someone said to me, oh, that person's been hidden in this and this area. Try and find Father so-and-so who was a Roman Catholic priest at the local mission there. He'll tell you where to find this guy. It was that kind of network. So I'd drive out to a place like Ennerdale, which is on the other side of um, Winterton, and arrive at Father Smith's place there and have to explain who I was. It wasn't like cloak and dagger in the sense that there were code words you could use that would would kind of, but eventually he understood exactly who I was and, and why I was there. And then go out and find a family and find this witness and try and bring them back without getting caught. Because if the police caught you along the way, they'd arrest that witness. Ilan, thank you so much for sharing just some of the stories that you that you're involved in at the time. And um, yeah, thank you for joining me and good luck for the rest of your work. I think you are one of the people that have their work cut out for you, irrespective. Yeah, you know, one of the bitter ironies was, is my wife reminded me that many years I said to, ago, I said to her, you know, one day we might end up still fighting the human rights fight, even though things had changed. And it's ironic, but here we are 30 years later And there's still a great deal to do. And the beautiful thing is there are so many good young people coming through the ranks who recognize that human rights is a journey and we have a long way to go as a society. And I think that the one thing that I wanted to say was I get really tired of people saying, oh, we're 30 years past apartheid. Why are we still complaining about apartheid? The important thing to remember is that You know, when we look at countries in Europe that made transformations from what were monarchies to democracies, that process took 300 years. And we tend to forget that. So the the journey to a democratic state is a constantly evolving process and it takes time. And we have a huge, what is the right word, almost an albatross, if you like, where we need to find ways to build people's dignity and sense of self-worth. And until we do that, we're going to constantly be going two steps forward, four steps back. People need to feel that they own the society. They need to feel valued in their society. And they need to feel that they have a stake in the society for that society to really work. That's our job, particularly as white South Africans. That's our work is to contribute to making sure that other people around us feel valued and worthwhile and have dignity. And that's a beautiful note to end the interview on. Ilan, thank you so much for joining me. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Take care. Uh, that was Ilan Flax. He is one of the mentors in the book Mentors in the Trenches, sharing his story.